Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, Jesus and His People, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, That They May Be One. Heads up, spoiler alert. You know, today as we continue in our study of the Lord's Prayer or the High Priestly Prayer recorded in John 17, which Jesus prays first for his and the Father's glory, then second for his disciples, and then third for all those who will believe in him because of the testimony of the disciples. So today we're going to discuss that part of this prayer in which Jesus will pray for all those who believe in him from the testimony of the apostles. And today specifically, we're going to get no further along than that part in which Jesus prays that we might all be one. Now, we have to pause here and consider the Christian landscape today. I have on more than one occasion been at a prayer meeting in which church leaders from the community have come together, and then we read this part of the prayer, that we may be one, and then we bemoan the current divisions in the Christian world, even quoting a seemingly common source that there are some 30,000 Christian denominations in the world today. And what's more, we're told that denominations continue to split, resulting in ever more examples of our divisions, not in our expressions of unity as Jesus would have wanted it. And then we're told, who can speak of Christian unity in the face of such staggering realities? You know, from this, of course, we're told it was time for us to come together and not to pull apart. Well, that's all fine and well, but but you've not come to terms with what Jesus is actually doing in the high priestly prayer. So let's remember what this chapter is really all about. This is not a teaching of Jesus as to how we should act. It's a prayer in which Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, and the one who has come to do the Father's bidding, now prays to the Father on our behalf just before he goes to the cross. So again, let me repeat myself. These are not last-minute instructions. Rather, this is a prayer for those who will become his followers after he's gone to heaven. So let's read today's portion of the prayer. It's in John 17, 20 to 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Again, let's reorient ourselves. Jesus has been praying for the 11 who are left with him in the room. He's not done. He knows that the 11 are going to be wildly successful. They're going to win men and women to Christ from every people group on earth in preparation for his second coming when the kingdom of God will be consummated and all things are placed under Christ's feet. So in short, Jesus knows there's a great group of men and women who will attach themselves to him. And so it's good and appropriate for him to anticipate that and begin to pray for that group. So we go to the beginning of verse 21 that they may all be one. Now, without going into any details, the obvious thing that jumps out at us from this passage is that Jesus is concerned with the unity of all believers worldwide. He wants us to love each other. He wants us to remain together. It was his prayer that our fellowship would be central to our love for him. No Lone Ranger Christians, only Christians in active, loving, serving, praying relationships with each other. 
It was never his intention that any of us should have a private faith or a solitary faith. He wants us to be with each other, to love, to work with, to pray with, to hold each other accountable. Jesus came not only to save individuals, but also to build a church, and this is his prayer. And again, I point out this is not an instruction. Rather, it's a prayer to the Father. And as I've already said in this study, the prayers of Jesus are always answered in the affirmative. And I've said it's not always so with us. We might at times pray for something that's, that's not in the will of God. Or we might at times find that our prayers are not answered because we're harboring unconfessed sins in our hearts. Or, you know, we might find our prayers are simply answered with a no because we haven't prayed with godly wisdom or in the Spirit. But this is not true with Jesus. He's the perfect sinless one. He's praying in the will of the Father, and all that he prays is going to be answered in the affirmative. And yet you might say, oh, this is one prayer that was certainly not answered. I mean, how could it have been answered? So we come back to that number of 30,000 Christian denominations. And by the way, I think it's an outdated number. So by now, uh, I think the number is probably closer to 40,000. And by the way, it's not an accurate number. That number includes actually Christian organizations, not just denominations, so it's too large. And furthermore, the number also includes the number of independent churches, each independent church claiming one denominational status. It also includes national branches of the same denomination, but found in different countries. I think the numbers we've been given is a very misleading number. But still, someone might say, well, putting all the numbers aside, It is still true that the Christian church, that is, the followers of Jesus, are hopelessly divided today. And that must mean that the Father didn't answer this prayer. And some even go so far as to argue that this is proof that Jesus can't be the Son of God at all. So I've chosen to lay aside one entire address to answer this important question. What are we to make of the divisions in the Christian church? You know, the first real breach in Christianity came in the year 1054, and this is also called the Great Schism. You know, for those of us living today, it's hard for us to gain perspective of just how earth-shattering that time was. The eastern and western branches of Christianity broke communion from each other. And the reasons are many and varied. And if you've read some histories, you'd think that the reason was over whether the communion bread was to contain yeast or not. But in truth, it wasn't as silly as that. You know, I won't go into the details, but only to say that Michael Serralarius, the patriarch of Constantinople, and Pope Leo IX were anything but friends, and through a series of political wranglings, both men managed to excommunicate each other. And so from 1054 on, there was a split between the Western Church and the Eastern Church that we now know as the split between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. But then some 500 years later, following a series of events which we usually date back to the year 1517, there was another split in the Western Church. Martin Luther in Germany, John Calvin in France, Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland, along with a great many others, including, you know, the Anabaptists, the Anglican movement in England under the leadership of men like Thomas Cramner. The Baptistic groups were formed shortly thereafter. All these groups broke from Roman Catholicism. And the reason can usually be put into five categories, often called the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Sola is a Latin word. It means only. 
The Protestant reformers said that the Roman church had added things in places where there should have been only a sola. Sola scriptura means scriptures alone. See, the Roman church had allowed the church to have equal authority to the scripture. Sola gratia means grace alone. Again, the Roman church claimed to have a treasury of merits and that the church could dispense forgiveness. However, the reformers said, we receive forgiveness only by the grace of God. Third, sola fide means by faith alone. We don't access God's grace through the sacraments. Rather, we access God's grace through faith, trusting in Christ. And that led to the fourth sola Christos. We receive forgiveness through Christ alone, not through the church. And finally, fifth, soli deo gloria, meaning to God alone be the glory for our salvation. Human effort is excluded. Humans add nothing to their salvation. God alone gets the glory. And so historically, the cry of the Reformation was, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and as described in the scriptures alone. Anything short of that seeks to steal the glory from God and give it to either the church or the pope, and that's unacceptable. It's heresy. I feel like a sermon's coming on, but that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm speaking about Christ's prayer that we might all remain one, and it seems we're not. You know, since the time of the Reformation, all manner of developments changed the landscape even further. The rise of the Pentecostal movement, the rise of liberal theology in which it was claimed you could reject both the authority of the Roman church and the authority of the Bible, and you could still be a Christian. And that arose and utterly decimated many of the Protestant churches in Europe, leaving them nothing but ashes. And in North America, this also spread, but a strong counter-movement was mounted. But the mainline denominations in the U.S. and in Canada became liberal and have, to the most part, actually died out. But in its place arose a powerful evangelical movement which sought to recapture the five solas of the Reformation. That's a very short, abbreviated history of how we got to where we are today. But back to Jesus' prayer, that they may all be one. Sounds like it didn't happen. Or I think it did happen. Stay tuned. The Advent season is a very special time of year but it sometimes gets lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. While this month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as he walks us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with a very special video presentation entitled An Advent Celebration. An Advent Celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy, sharing trustworthy Bible teaching that brings good news and great joy. To know more or to make a gift to support the ministry this season, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed within the will of the Father. He prayed that they all may be one. Now, the grammatical intent here is that we might constantly be one. That is, this oneness is a state that might always be there. 
We'd never fall out of it. You know, from this, we can see that that Jesus prayed for unity, and he prayed for a constant, ongoing, unbreakable bond of unity between all his followers. In other words, an ongoing, unbreakable bond between every single true believer in Jesus. Look, he didn't say, well, Father, let this be the ideal that they should always strive for, and when it doesn't work, let them wring their hands and repent and feel guilty about their many denominations and then have ecumenical services in which they repent together. He didn't say that. No, he was praying that the unity that believers have should never be broken. And as I've said before, I can't imagine, A, Jesus asking for something to which the Father says no, or B, asking for something that's out of the Father's will, or C, asking for something that the Father can't deliver. As if the Father says, well, I'd like to answer it, but I can't control this motley crew that we've just saved. No, it's not it. And I mentioned point number C because some of us, if we're not careful, we'll say, well, now, you know, God can't contravene human freedom. Oh, yes, he can. The Bible is full of God contravening human freedom. I mean, consider Pharaoh. He decided he would not let Israel go. Or consider the people of Canaan who were determined to keep Joshua out. Or think about what God says in Proverbs 21, verse 1. There it says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Sure, God can change human hearts. He can melt the heart of ice. And he can surely safeguard the unity of his church. Well, then, if he can, why hasn't he done it? Ah, but in that question, I think you're making an assumption. Your assumption is that unity refers to an organized global unity. Let's look again at John 17, 21. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And so rather than approaching this matter of Christian unity from our perspective, that is, unless we're all under one organizational umbrella, we can't have unity. That's how some of us think. Rather than approaching the matter of Christian unity from our perspective, we do far better to ask what Jesus had in mind. What was he praying for? And once we ask the question that way, allowing Jesus himself to tell us what he prayed, we'll begin to see this matter of Christian unity through a different lens. Clearly, when Jesus prayed that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, well, clearly, Jesus has in mind a kind of unity that is patterned on the Father's relationship with the Son. You see, if the unity Jesus asked for was based upon, you know, the kind of unity that exists between the Father and the Son, our task is then to ask, well, what kind of unity exists between the Father and the Son? Well, let's be clear. See, on the one hand, in John 10, 30, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he's pointing out his equality with the Father. Indeed, it's what theologians often call a unity of essence. It means that both the Father and the Son are fully God. Well, that idea of unity does seem unique to the Trinity. Only the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one in essence. And we can never be that. So what else can Jesus mean? I think the best place to start is to re-examine Christ's prayer all over again. Go back to verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So did you notice that the Father and the Son both have a common motive behind all their actions? They're equally committed to the glory of God. Everything that motivates God is for his glory and his glory alone. 
And from that, I assume that Jesus wants the same thing with us. That is, that all genuine believers are united in this. We are also equally committed to the glory of God. So what unites us? Well, what unites believers is not that we have the same church structures or all have the same form of service with the same headquarters in Rome, but that we love to see Jesus lifted up. We love to see the wonder of Jesus proclaimed. We love it when much is made of our God and the wonder of his cross. We're unified in our desire to see God presented as lovely and as worthy of praise and altogether desirable. That's unity. What else? Well, look at verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Well, here's another form of unity between the Father and the Son. They share a common mission. That mission is the Great Commission. That mission is to bring in the elect. It is to bring some of the ruined, lost, sinful human beings of this world into salvation. The Father and the Son are completely committed to that mission, and so also is the church. Every true church exists to fulfill the Great Commission. That's true of us corporately. It's true of us individually. Everything serves to bring men and women to faith in Christ, and it unites us. So we're united over the passion to make much of God. We're also united in this passion to bring others to obedience in faith. Now look at verse 8. For I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. See, the Father and the Son are both committed to the same truth, to the truth about God. Ah, here's the rub, isn't it? Immediately you might say, well now, think about all the doctrinal differences between Christians. I mean, surely we don't have anything close to resembling a unity in the truth. This is one of the reasons I personally find so much talk about Christian unity disturbing. You know, there are those in the ecumenical movement who simply allow for a great theological disagreements to remain, even straight out errors and heresies, and they still think you can have unity. So they imagine a unity in organization, but not a unity in truth. Well, if that's what you want, I can assure you, it's not what Jesus prayed for, nor does his life demonstrate that he's unconcerned for truth. I mean, just consider his debates with the Pharisees. He's willing to divide on matters of truth. But still, uh, there are those who say, how about that is the point? Doctrine divides. Well, that may be. But doctrine that is focused on the truth also unites. Now, I'm not saying that all believers agree on every doctrinal issue. That, That would seem unreasonable. But have a hard look at the three ecumenical creeds of the Christian faith in history. And here I'm speaking about the Apostles' Creed, which is a summary of the foundational beliefs of the Christian church. Then the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed, they're a statement of both the Trinity and of the nature of Jesus. All true Christians hold these creeds as true. We're not varied in any degree on those three. Let me go beyond that. The inerrancy of Scripture, justification or forgiveness of sins, comes by grace alone through faith alone the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus, the visible return of our Lord to judge the living and the dead, the sovereignty of but one God who is both our creator and our redeemer, the cross as an atoning sacrifice, the Holy Spirit as the one who bears witness to Christ, the nature of the holy life. I I could go on and on. See, that doesn't mean there are no disagreements between believers. We may disagree on the nature of baptism, or we may disagree on the relationship of the church to the state. 
We may even disagree on the biblical nature of leadership in the local church. And we may disagree on the place of tongues or prophecy. There are many matters upon which we may disagree. But the central matters, that is the foundational matters, the matters upon which no one is allowed to deviate, this is the true church. And it holds these truths in unity. We are one in the truth. And that, my friend, is no small thing. This is why we will not accept groups like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses or even liberal Christianity as a true expression of the Christian faith. On this, all true believers make a distinction and we're unified here. Consider John 17 verse 11 and notice that Jesus refers to the Father as Holy Father. And then later in verse 17, he prays that we be sanctified in the truth. The Father and the Son are both holy, and indeed, all true believers are unified in our commitment also to purity and to resolute rejection of sin. Every believer longs to win the war over indwelling sin. We will do all we can so that we together might be presented holy before the Father. All true believers agree that obedience is not an option, and it's our desire to be holy. Don't you see this is what unites us? And that's why we love each other. I've noticed several things about all true believers. The first is the connection we have with each other. I've met believers from around the world and I've noticed that there's an immediate connection of love. I've hugged Jews and Palestinians when we were found we were believers. Yeah, there have been church fights and they're sad, but I must say this, I'm overwhelmed at how unified, genuine Christians actually are. And then maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, should I have? After all, Jesus prayed for this. John, thanks so much. Can I revisit something? It's, it's the distinction of the unity Jesus prays for and organizational unity. This is a unity much greater than the institution, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to ever say something that would take away from the fact that at one level, I mean, obviously the church is an institution and we seek to lead the church in such a way that the local church has a unified pattern to it. But, but here, sometimes, especially when we think about the divisions between denominations and so forth, um, you know, I've been trying to make the point that uh, there may be so many different denominations in the world, but there can be an underlying unity of heart and spirit, a commitment to Christ. And, and we see that, Ben, everywhere we go. Uh, you go overseas and you meet someone you've never met before in a culture that's completely foreign to you. And when you find out that they're in Christ, your heart just leaps for joy. They're your brother and your sister. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus and His People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. As you know, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to sharing the good news every single day through our radio Bible teaching and a wide variety of audio and video resources. While buying time for radio teaching on stations from coast to coast is costly, it's a cost we believe is of high value. All of our ministries rely on the generosity of people like you. And this month stands out as critical as we look to close the calendar year end strong for the new year ahead. Our goal for December 31st is to raise $376,000 to support our ministry work. Please consider investing in our efforts to help people of all ages and stages to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. 
Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.